0: can I draw your attention back to Psalm 2 and to focus on Psalm 2 uh, this morning? Now, I'm a great fan of flying in planes. I don't know if any of you are. Some people absolutely hate it. I absolutely love it. One of my favourite parts of that is checking in and sitting in departure lounges, uh, drinking coffee and watching the world go by. Uh, but my most favourite part has to be takeoff. Where these jet engines suddenly kick into life, you get thrown back in your seat, and this massive thing somehow raises itself off the ground and flies. Now, international flights are quite nice, I think, uh, as you uh, fly very long distances. You're in this big behemoth of a thing. Uh, it's flying. It's flying at 500 miles an hour at 30,000 feet. Um, I love that kind of thing. You just sit there and relax. But domestic flights are quite different, aren't they? where you just hop over between one uh, perhaps uh, country and another. Uh, I remember going from Seattle to Vancouver uh, in Canada once, and uh, literally you feel every bump, and you're looking through the window and you can see the wings are doing this. They're literally flapping. It's a terrifying experience. Um, looking at Psalm 2 and thinking about Psalm 1 as well is a little bit like comparing international and domestic flights. In Psalm 1, your focus is very much limited, like a domestic flight, to the most urgent matter concerning the individual. You, as an individual, must know where you're going and must be sure. Uh, that you belong, as it says in Psalm 1, to the congregation of the righteous. But in Psalm 2, you're, all, you're on altogether a different, bigger plane, and your sights are now lifted uh, to the great kings and rulers of the world. But your sights are lifted again uh, upward to the one who sits on the throne of the universe and here you must know where the whole of history is going and to whom the whole universe has been promised so today we're going international uh, we're going to the ends of the earth as it says in verse 8 here but we're also going beyond the cosmos to he who sits in the heavens as it says in verse 4 and if we're going beyond the cosmos, we really need to strap ourselves in. My first thought uh as we consider Psalm two is that we are looking at an insane mutiny. We're looking at an insane mutiny. I don't know if you like history, I'm a big fan of history. Uh there have been lots of mutinies uh in the past. Uh some of those mutinies have been made into films, uh like The Mutiny on the Bounty many mutinies they follow a very similar pattern you have those being ruled over they become fed up with those who are ruling over them uh, and the way that they're being treated Uh, they organize and carry out a rebellion against those who rule over them uh, and they succeed for a little while Uh, but then of course those who rule have bigger weapons bigger armies uh, and then they crush the mutiny uh, in often quite a gruesome fashion uh lots of mutinies you could argue uh were insane they had no hope of succeeding in the long run and in verse 1 and 2 of psalm 2 we see a mutiny by whom well you've got four groups you've got the nations the peoples the kings of the earth and the rulers they set themselves they take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed one, and being against the Lord, God, therefore makes them an international version of what you see in Psalm 1 verse one: the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. And these different factions, these four groups, they forget their differences and they gang up together, uh, which includes, of course, the Gentiles, the nations, and they are united in one purpose and that ungodly coalition is against god and against his anointed one in psalm 1 verse 2 you have that word meditate which is chew over think about think carefully and the righteous person in psalm 1 chews over thinks carefully about what god says and obeys it differently in psalm 2 uh they this ungodly coalition they chew over they think about what god says and they plot against it and you have outright rebellion against god and the one he has delegated to the throne now this anointed one in the first interpretation of that phrase that word is of course the human davidic king and god has delegated him he has set him on this throne And this ungodly coalition, they see the rule of God and his chosen king as a restrictive one, don't they? Have a look at verse three. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Now, for this ungodly coalition, the rule of God is more akin to an imprisonment. Now, we read it earlier, didn't we? You don't have to look far in the New Testament to find Psalm 2 being quoted. You see it, of course, in Acts 4, and it's a prime example. The early church there in Acts 4, they saw the mutinous uh, activity of world leaders around them being fulfilled in the behavior of those in charge during the crucifixion of Messiah Jesus. So of course, in, in Acts 4, as I already mentioned, uh, Peter and John, they are dragged before the sanhedrin. they are ordered not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Uh, and uh, it says that in verse 18. And as I said, those believers, rather than have a panicked meeting to worry about what's going to happen now to the church, they rather get down on their knees and they pray quite a remarkable prayer. It really is. Uh, verse 27 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So they're interpreting, uh, as they quote Psalm 2 there, the, uh, the things that are going on around them in that way. And how about this? For perspective, all these things that are happening and what happened to Jesus, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The early church clearly saw Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2 in this light: the four groups of mutinous conspirators, the nations, the peoples, the kings of the earth, and the rulers of Psalm 2 in Acts 4. It's Herod, it's Pontius Pilate, it's the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They all forgot their differences, didn't they? And they ganged up together against who? Against the Lord and against his anointed one. And who, of course, is that anointed one? Well, it's none other than Messiah, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah. Against God's Messiah 2000 years ago the political climate the status quo the powers that be they all conspired and you know what they seemingly got their way didn't they they seemingly got their way to the watching world and i reckon to satan even evil had won the day you know the story jesus died he was crucified on a roman cross uh, the mutiny against God and His anointed one had won a momentous victory. And when it says in John 1930, Jesus said, "It is finished." With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I can imagine that Satan and his angels threw a massive party, because they thought that they had won. But I'm telling you, that party did not last long. It didn't last long. The early church had got it right. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The death of Jesus was in no way a disaster. It was, in fact, God's momentous victory over man's sin. He had planned it all along. These mutineers were just doing what God and God's will and his power had decided should happen and I think that is amazing it is amazing which is why the believers in Acts chapter 4 were not surprised when they saw opposition against them the same had happened to their Messiah which is why also when they saw that opposition they did not raise the white flag they saw that God is none other than the sovereign Lord who is so in control of things that he can use wicked men to be the means by which he accomplishes the the purposes that he has for his church which is why 21st century believers brothers and sisters in Christ we should not be surprised when we see those in authority in society around us ganging up together against the one whom we worship and trust for our salvation and in so doing they gang up of course against his church it's happened before and it will happen again jesus was most clear about this wasn't he to his disciples john 15:18 to 20 if the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first if you belong to the world it would love you as its own as it is you do not belong to the world but i have chosen you out of the world that is why the world hates you remember what i told you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you also We have to remember, don't we, that the world around us is not neutral when it comes to the gospel. Innate sinfulness means that unregenerate people are predisposed to oppose God and his Messiah. Romans 8 verse 7 is pretty blunt. The sinful mind is hostile, is hostile to God. That's a pretty powerful, strong description and so even when we perhaps do not even see a cause hostility to the gospel is the natural outworking of a sinful world but like the believers in acts chapter 4 we do not raise the white flag we do not raise the white flag we trust in something outside of ourselves don't we we trust in something outside of, of ourselves. Remember, I labelled this point the insane Miltony. The insane Miltony. In other words, it is bonkers in the end to oppose God and His Messiah. One commentator who writes about Psalm 2, he calls these people who are arrayed against God and His Messiah suicidal nincompoops, and I like that suicidal ninkum poops now this is the question why is it insane why is it bonkers suicidal to oppose the lord and his anointed one well it's suicidal because of what comes next and what comes next is verses four to six the ungodly coalition have staged their mutiny they've declared their war on god what's his response well his response is not one we naturally associate with god is it it really isn't verse four the one enthroned in heaven laughs laughs the lord scoffs at them the master of the universe the one enthroned in heaven mocks these little grasshoppers shaking their fists in his face in quite a scary way he finds their rebellion humorous he finds it funny and he makes fun of them for it and so my next point is the mocking master the mocking master i think there is a western sentimental view of god which is not one we find in the bible but permeates our own thinking often god in our own minds is some kind of grandfather type who sits on a fluffy cloud and welcomes one and all into his presence now to the modern mind that is a far more palatable version of God than the one laid out before us here to the modern person God in Psalm 2 after hearing these rebellious people would have uh, perhaps invited them round for a coffee and tried to reason with them that is not what happens what we actually see is this God looks down from heaven He laughs at what he sees, makes fun of what he sees, and he is having none of it. He is having none of it. The kings of the earth, they have had their chance to speak. Now it's God's opportunity. It is God's opportunity. And when he speaks, it is frightening. It really is. Verse five. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath what you see is human actions contrasted by god's actions the leaders of the world say let us and then god comes with that emph- emphatic word i i he says so the rulers of the world they have made their move they've broken their chains thrown off their fetters uh, as they see it of the lord and his anointed one now god acts and the divine actions are in contrast to human decisions. The insane mutiny of verses one and two, the living out of the response of what we see in Luke 19, that parable of the 10 minas. "We do not want this man to rule over us. God contradicts all of this by arranging a coronation day. Verse six: "I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill." you may well declare your independence God is saying but I have already decided who will be in charge I already have my earthly representative now here's the question where does this coronation take place well it says isn't it on Zion my holy hill now I'm sure you're very intelligent people here before me this morning you know your Bibles well where was Zion what is Zion well, it's first referenced in 2 Samuel 5, verse 7. It's a hill just north of Jerusalem. Uh, it was the site of the temple chosen and prepared in David's lifetime. It was therefore symbolic of the place where God had chosen to make his presence known uh, to his people. It was where God dwelt with his own. So you have this grand counterstatement by God. But in human terms verse 6 there was nothing grand at all about the location of God's kingdom on earth apparently Zion is a tiny 11 acre plot of land on a banana shaped hill in what one commentator calls a provincial backwater called Judah so God's earthly representative will rule in a kingdom planted in weakness in weakness now i like to use my imagination i'm a primary school teacher so it comes with a territory so i'm imagining here a god-fearing jew listening to this psalm about 3000-ish years ago being sung, and he's listening to it and he's thinking right it's now time for these mutinous kings to be de- dealt a lesson taught a lesson Uh, the Lord is laughing he's terrifying them in his wrath and now he's setting up his king what on Zion on Zion is that it is that all we've got now as 21st century Christians reading uh, Psalm 2 we see a mutinous world around us don't we Uh, we see it in the first two verses, we see that God is on his throne uh, in heaven in verse 4, we see that he finds all that rebellion laughable, we know that God's anointed one has already come and has already died for sins and has already risen from the dead, but then we realise that in these last days, God's dwelling with his people is not in some provincial backwater uh, on a banana-shaped hill, but rather he now dwells by his spirit in his people. In other words, God's dwelling these days is in his church, is in his church. And you may be thinking, what? Is this all we've got to take on uh, the hostile governments around us, the hostile media? hostile institutions in this dark world is this all we've got and do you know the answer yes in a way yes but read on read on in psalm 2 with the grand declaration of verse 6 you have a grand decree in verses 7 to 9 have a look at verse 7 i will proclaim the decree of the lord he said to me you are my son Today I have become your father. Now again, I'm sure you know your Bibles. Where have you heard these kind of words spoken elsewhere? Well, I'm sure you know Matthew chapter three verse seventeen, Jesus' baptism. Of course, heaven opens, the Spirit of uh, of God descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, "This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased." matthew 17 verse 5 the transfiguration uh, again while peter was still speaking a bright a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said this is my son whom i love with him i am well pleased listen to him coupled together what are these verses doing well clearly they are legitimizing jesus as the messiah Jesus most certainly is the rightful king that God has installed in Zion. Have a look at verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. We have this rightful king, but look at the scope of his kingdom he will rule over the nations the other countries of the world and his kingdom will be an international worldwide kingdom but it doesn't stop there have a look at verse nine you will rule them with an iron scepter you will dash them to pieces like pottery there is a great scope to that kingdom but there is a great force to that kingdom too Okay, verse 3 tells us that uh, these mutinous kings will not welcome this kingdom, but then the anointed one will impose that kingdom with force, with a mighty iron scepter. Do you see what these verses are telling us? Planet Earth may well seem to be under the reign and rule of leaders and organizations powerfully opposed to the gospel that we believe in but the one who has created planet earth all the physical laws that hold it in place uh, he is in total control of its history and its story from beginning to end and he has already uh, put his legitimate king and installed him and it says here in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, "The knowledge of the glory of whose kingdom will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea." It is already decided. Nothing can stop it. At the name of Jesus, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, "Not some knees, but every knee will bow." and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The plain truth here is that we will bow to Messiah Jesus whether we like it or not. Verse 9 of Psalm 2 is incredibly strong. Here it really is. Uh, God's Messiah will rule the nations and the ends of the earth with an iron scepter and opposition will be dashed to pieces like pottery it's an uncomfortable image isn't it as modern people we don't like this kind of language it frightens us but let me suggest as i close this morning that i think yes it is frightening but it's frightening and wonderful at exactly the same time because what you have at the end of this psalm is a frightening but fabulous offer. In verse 10, the Lord offers this mutinous coalition an opportunity to embrace his mercy. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Other versions say, now, therefore. It's an exhortation. It's an appeal to wisdom based on the reality of the anointed one's kingdom. Why should they be wise? What incentives do they have? Well, I think they have two incentives, two reasons. And you see them in verse 12. Number 1, there is a danger to avoid. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment but then on the plus side you have an incentive of a joy to be uh, experienced blessed it says right at the end there blessed are all who take refuge in him and I think this is both frightening and fabulous frightening first of all because you look at the language of these last two verses verse 11 and 12 of Psalm 2 serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling in verse 12 you've got anger destruction and wrath i think the picture is clear here you don't mess with god and his anointed one how are the kings and rulers to be wise simple it's about submission submitting to god serve the lord with fear kiss the Son lest he be angry it's not an appealing option for the kings and the rulers here this is very much a picture of a conquered foe having to kneel before and kiss the feet of the conqueror the offer really is not for two equal sides to come together to sort of form a kind of agreement not at all god is saying cease your rebellion or you will be destroyed serve me with fear Kiss the feet of my son or certain destruction awaits that is what it is saying and you cannot get away from it again i think there is a western sentimental view not only of god the father but of god the son which has permeated our own thinking there is often that portrayal i think of G- gentle jesus meek and mild who is this wonderful example of sacrificial love of course before you shoot me of course Jesus has indeed loved us and given himself for us he really is the epitome of true love there is no question about that but you read the gospels you read them Jesus speaks so much about the day of judgment and of course about having to be prepared for that day of judgment we may not know the day or the hour when it comes but God the son tells us time and time again be prepared be prepared you read Acts uh, chapter 17 Paul there is in front of the Areopagus Uh, he says this about the judging and the person who does that judging on the day of judgment verse 31 for God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Who is this man that God has appointed? Well, it is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, Yahweh's anointed one. Jesus said it himself, didn't he? John 5:22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment. To the Sun. one day he is going to come. His name. He? He's going to come on the clouds with his angels, and there will be that great separation. That great separation. The whole of mankind, just like Psalm one, are going to be divided into two camps, two groups, and that is it. Matthew twenty five forty six. Twenty five forty six he's talking of course of the sheep and the goats these goats will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life it is frightening stuff I know but it's the most important question we can ever face are we prepared for the day of judgment are we following the warnings of Yahweh in Psalm 2 and are we becoming Wise. This psalm, it does not only talk to rebellious world leaders, it talks to rebellious sinners. We, of course, have shaken our fists, haven't we? In God's face. We have declared war on him. Have we lowered our raised fists? Have we put down our swords? Have we got down our, on our knees and have we kissed the feet of his son in submission? I'm telling you it does not feel good to do so. It does not feel uh, right to do so. In ourselves, we want to rule our own worlds, don't we? We want to rule our own worlds. We want to be the kings of our own universes. But the best possible thing is to raise the white flag and serve the Lord. As I finish this morning, I'm telling you it is the best possible thing to submit to Jesus, because when you do so... You do not get thrown into some prisoner of war camp or paraded on the streets in shame. When you submit to Jesus, you are set free. You are set free. There are no chains, there are no fetters with the Lord and his anointed one. It is a life of sin that imprisons and enslaves human beings. Jesus says it himself. John 8. 34 everyone who sins is a slave to sin that is where the chains and the fetters are but you bow to the Lord's anointed one and you're set free to be truly human we were created of course to be in a relationship with God and nothing else suffices it really doesn't nothing else will suffice whom the son sets free he is free indeed he really is and the end result of submitting to god of admitting that we are sinners and that only trusting in his sacrificial death on that cross can save us well you see it here in psalm 2 don't you yes we serve the lord with fear uh, and we are to tremble but in that trembling we can rejoice we can rejoice in submitting to the Lord and his Messiah you can be joyful you really can in the midst of the warnings of verse 10 to 12 the blessings of bowing to Yahweh are just simply massive blessed are all who take refuge in him what does this blessedness entail well it is endless sins forgiven eternal life the righteousness of jesus himself the gift of the holy spirit reconciliation with god god is your heavenly father jesus as your friend we can go on and on and on we really could and what about the day of judgment as christians are we to fear the day of judgment well not at all jesus will be there he will be our refuge god will be our refuge we're going to be protected from his wrath because his wrath has already fallen on his own son instead of us i think being a christian is the best thing in the world